The Cultural Scavenger is all about entertaining backstories. My guest on this episode is author, writer, scholar, Elliot Engel. He was a popular English professor at North Carolina State University, took a leave of absence from teaching to give humorous lectures on serious subjects. Those lectures were so popular, he never went back. He made a career of sharing some of the most wonderful personal stories about famous authors and their private lives that are more fascinating than their bodies of work. We all had to read a Dickens novel in grade school, and for many of us, it was a chore. So when my wife Barbara discovered you when we lived in Mount Airy, North Carolina, and told me I had to hear a lecture from this guy talking about Dickens, I thought, gee, I think I'd rather have my fingernails pulled out. But I went and I heard your talk on the Dickens Nobody Knows, and I was enthralled. Now, my criteria for this podcast is having a good story, and you're the best storyteller I've ever known. So welcome to the Cultural Scavenger, Professor Elliot Engel. Well, I appreciate that. Obviously, you've led a very sheltered life if I'm the best, but I do appreciate that. I'll be honest, reading Dickens in school was a chore for me. If only I'd have a professor like myself back then, well, that would have solved it. But, you know, I think if you're going to be a teacher, you probably learn most from those mentors who are so wonderful that they inspire you to be a teacher But to be honest, I think I learned more from the few awful teachers I had who could make any topic dull. And I think I learned from them what not to do, which is more important than what to do. And I think one of my (laughs) secrets is all my topics sound god awful boring. Dickens, Poe, Shakespeare, Twain, Hemingway. And so people come in with such low expectations that if I'm even just okay. They are so relieved I'm not as bad as I, they thought I was going to be that I sound wonderful in comparison. So <laughs> I don't do fascinating topics. I try to make boring topics fascinating. Much easier. The bar is so low. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, what a gimmick. Uh, <laughs> you you got to have a gimmick as you we do know from the strippers. Yeah. Well, and you focus on the often unusual lives of the authors instead of the the subject matter from Twain to the Bronte sisters. I mean, whoever would think that I'm going to do a talk on the Bronte sisters. I think that would have been the, if, if you'd told Kiss me that. Death. One. <laughs> Kiss yeah, death. exactly. And yet it was, they were so weird. It was just fascinating. I mean, just amazing. And then of course, Edgar Allan Poe, kind of one of your top, It is certainly one of my top five. But what people don't realize is that if you're going to be famous for writing imaginative fiction, you will have had to have a fascinating life because there is no way that someone who led a terribly dull life on the outside and on the inside could ever be famous as an author. For example, I do Emily Dickinson. She did not have a fascinating outside life. She basically sat in her room and wrote 1776 of the most brilliant poems we've ever had. But her imaginative life inside that comes out not just in her poems, but in her letters to other people, you piece together a life that shows your audience why a person like this would write immortal works like that. 
Some critics don't want to consider the biography of an author when they give a talk. I'm completely against that. All of my talks are about how did someone who led this life end up writing these works? And whether you're interested in literature or not, all audiences are interested in gossip, particularly people who've been dead two, three, four hundred years. So it's not hurting them personally. And I think that's one of my ends. I tell them little details that might be considered gossip during their lifetime, but is now considered a key to their imagery, to their themes, to their titles and everything else. People have a very difficult time reading Shakespeare. That was probably more difficult than reading Dickens. I, I think oh, we, had to read, yeah, we had to read Julius Caesar when I was in ninth grade. And it was like, oh my God, I can't. Had I it can't been written then, Andy? I didn't realize that. He must have just finished that one. I think so. I think it was just like hot <laughs> off the. Uh... <laughs> no, no, there wasn't there. Yeah, there was the press. It was invented in 1485. So he, he made it. Um, I'll tell you, Shakespeare's a big exception in that he lived so long ago. He was born in 1564. We know so little about his life that I wasn't going to do him because I was stumped. There's not enough life. So what I decided to do is pretend that my audience is at a performance of any of his plays, let's say in the year 1600, and I show them what it is like to be in that audience when the greatest writer of all time had his plays on stage. I couldn't do his life, but what I could do is recreate the excitement of being in Renaissance England when this phenom was on stage and what the audience was thinking. What we do have is great reactions to his plays. We'll see that's far more interesting than any life. We took a family trip to Disney World. And this was this was our first trip with the kids, taking them to Disney World. We drove down from Virginia. And at the time, the Harry Potter book had just come out. And so I purchased the the audio cassette right. so that we could listen to it on the way down there. So we pop it in and we're driving along and Drew and Allison were kind of like, eh, we were all just bored with Harry Potter. I think, you know, some people love Harry Potter. Some people like us are kind of like, meh. And so we thought, well, okay, what's the other cassettes that we have? Ah, we have professor Elliot Engel. Let's put Dr. Ingalls' tape on, I'm pretty sure it was the Dickens that no nobody knows. They couldn't get enough of it. It was the damnedest thing I'd ever seen. Share the story of how Dickens got this imagination. And one of the characters that came up in, this, in your talk was Captain Murderer. The kids couldn't get enough of Captain Murderer. Tell me about that one. I'll be glad to. Fortunately, Dickens wrote down that when he was three years old, his parents got a maid. Now, back then, they had no money. But if you wanted a maid, you just went out in the street. You saw people who we call bag ladies today. You dried them off. You brought them in the house. You didn't have to pay them anything. You only had to give them three meals a day in a warm place to sleep. And they did all your work. So that's how Dickens's parents got a maid whose name was Mary Weller. And Dickens, at age three, was impossible to get to sleep. No matter how people tried, he wouldn't go to bed until 10.30. His parents were sick of it. So Dickens's mother told this maid, Mary Weller, that if she could find some way to keep Dickens quiet in bed 
at night, she could keep the job and not have to do most of the housework. Well, fortunately, Mary Weller's great hobby was drinking. And so she would drink <laughs> enough before she went in the room to tuck little Charles Dickens in so that she would always have a story to keep him fascinated. It didn't matter if she had 5,000 stories. The one story Dickens wanted to hear night after night was the tale of Captain Murderer. Captain Murderer was a sea captain because, you know, England is an island. And for six days out of seven, he was safe because he was out at sea. But on Saturday, he always went to town, to his house, and he invited a young, beautiful girl over for what he called a dinner date. And indeed it was. She was to appear at six o'clock at his door. She brought him in. She took him immediately to his kitchen, and there in the middle of the kitchen was a small table that had a pie plate on it, and inside the pie plate was a pie crust. And then he said nothing. He just stood there looking down at the crust until finally the beautiful date said, my, that's a gorgeous crust, but what's going to be the filling, Captain Murderer? Wrong question. With that, <laughs> Captain Murderer took out a 10-foot-long retractable sword. We don't have these anymore. It was just in Dickens's day. Pressed the blade to the young girl's throat and said, tell me, my dear, how old are you? And no matter what age the beautiful girl gave him, 19, 17, 11, he was into younger women as long as they were attractive. He immediately <laughs> chopped the poor girl up into as many pieces as her age, put the pieces in the pie, baked the pie in the oven for an hour, 375 if you're taking notes, took the pie out, ate it, and finished his date by picking his teeth with her bones. Well, little Dickens in bed, having turned green, you can imagine, couldn't wait to find out what happened next. And I would love to tell your listeners what happened next. But you may remember that Dickens also invented the soap opera by publishing his novels three chapters at a time, ending them on some kind of a suspenseful note. So you'd have to buy the next installment to find out what happened. So if you want to know what happened and how Captain Murderer ever got his just desserts, no pun intended, we'll have to save that for another episode where you actually pay me to be on this series. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. You jumped ahead there. I was going to prompt you to tell people about the website and how they can enjoy the Elliot Engel experience. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You've tackled figures as diverse as Joan of Arc to Andy Griffith. How do you pick your subjects? Here's how I pick my subjects. I only pick subjects that the public know something about, but not everything about. I'm not good enough to take an obscure topic that no one's ever heard of and make it fascinating. But when people walk in or listen to my lectures, they already know something. I do nobody who is obscure, including Joan of Arc. And then, having done my research, I tell them things that I hope will astound them. And when they leave my lecture, they will never think about that particular literary or historical figure in the same way again. And the other way I choose them is I started out with just Dickens. And I went to a friends of the library and they enjoyed it, but not enough to have me back the next year. So they said, do you do someone else? So I made up Shakespeare. Yes, I do Shakespeare. The next year I came back with Shakespeare. Then they wanted a third one. 
To make a long story short, though it's probably too late for that, I have now been to one library in North Carolina, Kinston, North Carolina, for 72 times, and I must go back with a new topic every time. So rather than trying to place my Dickens at 3,000 different locations where they haven't heard me, I wised up and decided it's easier just to invent, do another lecture at least one a year, so you can always go back to those people who like you with something new. In your uh, repertoire, you've got, what, 72? No, 106 now. I'm waiting for Kinston to have me 44 more times. (laughs) How do you go about keeping it straight? I'm not sure. I've always been, I never write out a lecture. I write out notes. And then for about the first 10 to 15 times, I'll give a lecture. I'll look at the notes, the fragments. But after that, I come up with sentence rhythms that I know how they're going to go. And that allows me to memorize these talks. So I kind of stand up there without a net for most of these. And luckily, I have yet to say that Mark Twain was a spinster in Massachusetts who dressed all in white and went to her room and write poetry. I've never confused, you know, Mark Twain (laughs) with Beowulf, but it could happen at any time. And at that point, I'm quitting. You know, as long as I can do this off the cuff, I'm good. And that's what makes your lectures so wonderful is it, it's just top of mind. It's just coming right off the top of your head. And, right. and, and uh, every word is memorized. Not that way at all. The trick yeah. is to make it sound spontaneous when it's not. Yeah. Short history of the English language was yeah. another one that's that was fascinating as well. And I love the piece where you talked about the compression of our language. Jeet? Jew? Exactly. Right. It, we call it... We call it Slurvian because obviously (laughs) over the centuries, all of us are in a hurry, never more so than the 21st century. So we can just shorten things down to their nub. People will understand. We'll get the conversation over quicker and we'll have about three seconds more at the computer or with Netflix after dinner. It is a huge mistake because the English language is glorious. You know, with our language, Keats knew what to do with it. Shakespeare knew what to do with it. Dickens knew what to do with it. But we of the 21st century, we just want to get it out as quickly as possible in just a glop so that the glory of the sounds and the emphasis of the words are lost. The French knew that speaking a language beautifully is actually entertainment in its own right. But there's something about Anglo-Saxon English that makes us want to simply spit it out as quickly as possible. So explain jeet, Jew. Right. In actuality, jeet is simply, did you eat yet? But think about it. If you say, did you eat yet? People will run away from you thinking, good God, he must be an English professor or even worse. He's enunciating each word. How can I shorten it to the absolute shortest form possible of communication and still know what people are saying? So rather than saying, did you eat yet? We say, cheat. And when you say (laughs) cheat to the right person, if that person is not going to answer you until he learns whether you have partaken of a meal, he will look right back at you and he'll say, Jew. And he's not asking a religious question. This is simply, did you slop together into Slurvian so we can move on to the next god-awful sentence? (laughs) Who's your favorite subject besides Dickens? 
That's a really good question. I would have to say Winston Churchill, and that is because I deliver more talks on Winston Churchill, 10 times more than Dickens. Everybody wants to hear about Churchill. And you talk about a man whose private life was far more fascinating and funny than any of the inspirational life we know of him through World War II. I say not one word about World War II in my talk on Churchill. I may be the first person ever to leave that out. But I'm talking about his character, why he lives in our imaginations today. Yes, he was a marvelous political leader, but we wouldn't remember him with a smile like we do if he didn't have an absolutely enduring sense of wit and the best sense of humor of any politician who's ever lived. Now, I realize that's not much of a bar to go over. Maybe John Kennedy might be one who had some wit too. But that's the thing about Churchill. It's the man, not the monument that I want to get into. Before COVID hit, how many talks per Mm -hmm. year were you doing? My top number, I did 173 a year. Now, I do lots of schools and I can do three or four periods in a row. And I count each one of those as a uh, separate lecture. But I was up to almost 200 talks a year. And, you know, with only 365 days and most people not wanting to hear you on the weekend and me needing some kind of a personal life, it was all the time. And then I kept, you know, winnowing it down and winnowing it down and wonder how low can I go? And then COVID gave me the answer, zero (laughs) for 13 months. And I have not regretted it. And with Zoom coming in, you know, we used to think of Zoom as something you did before get a speeding ticket. Now we discover it's something that an old person like me can sit right here in my dining room as I'm doing now and communicate with people in their bedrooms, in their pajamas, anytime I want, if they're willing to take that chance. Yeah. So you have been recognized in in the UK as a Dickens scholar. You, you also are, in, are involved in a Dickens charity with the hospital. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, because my field is Dickens, um, in 1982, that long ago, I went over there because we had a Dickens club here in Raleigh. There's 70 of them throughout the world. And if you start a Dickens Reading Club, then you become part of the Dickens Fellowship. You go over to England and they give you your charter. We called ours the Dickens Disciples. We finally had to change the name because people would come up and say, what denomination is that? And I would always say, Charles, isn't it obvious? So we didn't want to be known as a religious cult, so we changed it uh, to uh, Authors Inc. But when we were the Dickens Disciples, I would take groups to England all the time. And I found out that Dickens founded the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, the first children's hospital in Europe in 1852. He was one of the founders. And so everybody who's in a Dickens fellowship raises money for that charity. And since I sold my CDs or DVDs, I'm so old, they were originally just little tapes, audio tapes. We gave a profit from everything I sold to the Dickens Fellowship, and that made them very happy with me. And I even got to go to a school that was in the house that Dickens owned when he died, stood in the room where he expired, which was now a classroom, and delivered my Captain Murderer talk to these horrified little English children (laughs) as homage to Charles. That's awesome. Ain't it though? The lectures that you do for schools, 
I can envision these kids having the same, oh my God, we got to go hear this guy. Can you see the transformation between, oh, I just, I'm going to hate this so much to this is really fun? I do if things go right, and they usually do. I learned real early because in order to take a leave from my university to speak to adults, they made sure that 20% of my work had to be in the schools from grade four through high school. So I took four people that I knew would be studied, Dickens, Poe, Shakespeare, Twain, and I wrote a completely different lecture on each of those from the one that I did to adults. So I learned early how to entertain kids. Throw in references to any, you know, sex if you can. If not, <laughs> then horror, which works well with Captain Murderer, they will follow you anywhere. And that is why it is no surprise in desperation when you and Barbara put in my CD hoping the kids would pay attention. I had honed my skills as to how to keep kids awake and actually interested for probably 10 years before they heard that tape. So I, I know how to do it. What shocked me the most was sense of humor. Kids' sense of humor compared to adults is non-existent. And I had to learn what they find funny. It was, it was really a, a great psychological study. And although students are always my most difficult audience, they are certainly my most important. And if there's one thing I'm more proud of than anything else, it's been able to inspire them and get letters from them saying, you know, I decided to become an English major. I'm starving now. It's all your fault as an adult. But, you know, <laughs> I, I really get some good feedback. And well-deserved. Well, thank you. You have created a cliffhanger for my audience right now. Okay. Um, on the Captain Murderer. How does it I end? I did. So tell us how. I have to finish it. Tell the audience how they can finish. Tell my oh, audience. Oh, I like that even better. Yeah. Yes. Tell my That's audience right how they can hear the end of Captain Murderer. Take us to the website. Tell us how they can enjoy the Elliot Engel experience. I'll be delighted. It is so easy. They only have to go to professorengel.com. I will spell it because I might be slurring it. P R O F E S S O R E. N-G-E-L, not Engel, E-N-G-L-E, Professor Engel, E-N-G-E-L.com, all one word. And there they will see more than they've ever been interested in about what Dr. Engel can provide them if they'll just take a chance on the first one. Andy, anybody listening to you knows what exquisite taste you have. So if you are <laughs> urging this and they go on and hate it, all I ask is that they go back to you, not me. I didn't push it. You did. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you, thank you for that vote of confidence. And, <laughs> and I can tell you folks with great assurance, you will love every single one. And I've got, I admit, I, I need to catch up on the uh, other 60 lectures that I haven't heard yet. We're putting them in the mail today, COD. Lucky you. <laughs> Well, Elliot, thank you so much for joining me. You are the best storyteller I've ever heard. I highly encourage anybody listening to this, after they've heard this teaser, they're going to go out and do some downloads on your site. We shall see. Thank you for having me on, Andy. Thanks, and good to see you again. Take care, my friend. Well, that's the story. 
A special acknowledgement to Mary Ann Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening.